Hey everyone, welcome to the Living with Power Hope podcast. Lena Abijamer here and I'm your host and I hope you're having a great holiday season. I hope that you're enjoying all that God has for you and hey, there's nothing to prepare us for the holiday season like focusing on the Christmas story. So we've got something special on the podcast the next three weeks. Before we do, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast. Simply go to iTunes and click on subscribe. You can also give us a review if you haven't done so yet. Hey, did you know that on Thursday nights, I teach live on the Facebook community page called the Living With Power Facebook community page? Hey, we'd love to have you. We're right now going through a three-week series on Advent called Coming Alive. What we're doing is airing those teachings here on the podcast for the next three weeks. But even better, in the weeks to come, in 2022, we'll be studying books of the Bible there. So I'd love for you to join us live. But for now, listen up here for the next 30 or 40 minutes uh, while I go over the first of three in the Christmas story. Today's teaching is called Coming Alive in Your Expectations. So if you've been wondering whether you can hope in God, if you've been struggling and wrestling with hope, you're going to enjoy today's teaching. Awesome. Glad to have you in this session one of our series called Come Alive This Christmas. This series is called Come Alive in Your Expectations. If you know me, guys, you know I love to talk about expectations. I spent more than a chapter in my book teasing it out. What is expectation? What is our longing? So much of the Christmas story is a story of longing and crying out to God. In fact, I was thinking about some of the, the, the old hymns or uh, Christmas carols, I guess you could call them, uh, some that come to mind. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, a, a song of crying out to God to come and a story of longing. Uh, another hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. There's a longing leading up to this, this season of Christmas. And so many of us, you know, we've learned in life to quiet down our longings, to ignore our longings, to be suspicious of our longings when in fact God puts our longings on our heart and he, he puts them there for a reason. Our problem isn't that we have longings. Our problem is what we do with our longings, what we do with our desires, what we do with our expectations. And so if you're coming to this session now with longings and dreams and you're like, man, I, I don't know what happened in life. When did I go askew? When did I stop dreaming? Because I'm afraid to dream because of the disappointment in my life. You came to the right place. We're going to encounter a man named Zachariah and his wife, Elizabeth. This is the prequel to the Christmas story in Luke chapter one. And I'm going to give you four teaching points. I always sort of think through texts in terms of teaching points. Uh, I'm going to put us in the context of where things are happening in Luke. But let me to start read Luke chapter one. I'm going to pick up the reading in verse five. I'm going to read all Almost to the verse 25. I think I'll go ahead and read the whole thing now. Give us some context and then I'll break it down for you. How does that sound? I'm going to teach about half an hour and then there will be time for you to jot down questions if you want or at the end we'll, we'll pray together and, and end this hour, all right? And so it says in Luke 1 verse 5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God with the, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. 
for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You say, well, how did Zechariah respond? Well, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his house. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now, a lot happening in the story. You just got a, like, a big scratch, a kind of sketch of what's going on. Remember, we're talking about how God is going to bring us to life, come alive in your expectations. Evidently, you can see from the story that Elizabeth and Zechariah, this married couple, they were together for some time now. They're both advanced in years. The estimations, they're over 60, well past when they can have kids. They had an expectation. Like many of us, we live with expectations, with dreams, with longings. And there comes a point in our life that when we may give up on our expectations. And so how does this play out and how does God deal with these expectations? And what do we do when God possibly turns things around in our life. And I think these are such great themes. But let me just give you a little bit of a cultural context. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know a little bit about the timing of the story. This is the first gospel of Luke. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And two of them, all of them talk about the early days of Jesus and John, but Matthew and Luke are where the majority of the Christmas story are is from. Basically, uh, Mark and John have less details about the Christmas story, meaning uh, the nativity, the you know, the, the act of Jesus being born to Mary. But, but Matthew and Luke give you a whole lot of detail. Uh, of note also, again, if you're not that familiar with scripture, I think I want to just kind of break it down basically. Uh, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, and so the Gospels are sort of that the four books that talk about the life of Jesus. Well, that comes right after the Old Testament, and, and the gap between Old Testament and New Testament is 400 years. Basically, we're given the Old Testament, and after the book of Malachi, there is no written revelation from the Lord for 400 years. This is extremely significant as we think about longing and expectation. I, I, so often I know that fact. I talk about the, diff, the distance between the Old Testament and the New Testament and this gap of God's silence. But I think it is such an important point to meditate on as we sink our feet and our teeth, I guess our teeth, into the Christmas story. Like the Christmas story comes after years of silence you know well, what happened to the culture in those years of silence well a lot was happening in this culture remember back in the old testament at, at the peak of the end of the old testament you know sort of the story of the people of israel ended with the people of israel being taken into captivity they were under judgment by god and then eventually under the rule or, or the leadership i'm sorry of nehemiah and ezra they came back to jerusalem the city was rebuilt it was miraculous and there was a bit of a revival and yet there was a prediction also that that there, the Messiah would come, but until then there was this season of years, really hundreds of years, when nothing happened. And so all of the Old Testament prophecy of the coming Messiah was sort of dead for a while. Again, that's going to be very relevant as we look into some of the application points. In those years, 
the world, as the people of Israel knew it, was not going very well, all right? Again, very relevant to us because very similar, you're going to see to how we're living now. The leadership politically was a mess. Um, we hear right off the bat in the days of Herod, king of Judea, it doesn't take much more than a quick Google search for you to find out a little bit more about Herod. Most people who are familiar with the Christmas story aren't that fond of Herod. He's sort of the evil guy, the meanie. He's the one who later, and, and, and by the way, justifiably a meanie, more than a meanie, a bully, a, a killer, really. He was the one who, when he heard, when the wise men came and, and, and said, we're looking for King Jesus, uh, Herod was so upset that he ended up killing all of the kids who were in that age group at the time. Like there was a, basically a massacre of all of the uh, baby boys in that time. Think about it. This was that king. He was a man that the Roman Empire, who was ruling that area, had appointed as the ruler of Judea. He had actually Arab descent. He was an Edomite. And, and despite his origin, his, his descent of an Arab, he was practicing, supposedly practicing Jew. And so he was put by the Roman Empire to be the leader here, but that did not make him a good guy. In fact, he was quite cruel, cruel enough to have killed. I mean, when you when you read, even on Wikipedia, you read about who he killed. He killed uh, his sister-in-law, his uh, or his mother, the, 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 the wife of his brother, his mother-in-law, his own wife and his kids, he brutally murdered. So it was nothing for him to murder unknown firstborns in that time, right? Because his own family, this is how he got his way. He killed people. Imagine how many people we would kill if we just were able to do that, but we don't do that because it's wrong. This guy had no moral compass. He was cruel. He was disliked. And he was the ruler in that time after 400 years of silence where no word from God was being spoken. And you say, wow, wow, it feels so dark. Well, yes, it was very dark. In fact, the Roman empire was not a fan of people in general, certainly poor people, which the majority of people in that time were not well-to-do. In fact, later on, we're going to talk about Jesus or Mary and Joseph uh, in the next lesson. We're going to talk about the, the taxes and the census. And, and the people, by and large, had to pay taxes over half, 50, 60% of whatever they made, and they didn't make a lot. So it was oppressive in every way. It was oppressive uh, by, in the violence of the era. It was oppressive in the uh, eco economic standard of the area. It was oppressive in the lack of God's word in the area. It was a time of deep deep darkness. Many of us in 2021 are commenting, and, and I think if you're a Christian or not a Christian, there's a general sense right now in the world that things are dark. We're coming out of COVID. Just now we're hearing about this new strain of COVID. Just when you think, you're like, man, I'm, I'm off the hook. Things are going to be a little bit better. You know, I live still in a state that mandates masking, and so you still have this aura of that over you. We've got the political unrest. We've got the fighting that's constant, the shootings, the school violence, so similar to the era that we encounter in Luke chapter one. And if there ever was a time when the word of God seems scarce, it is now. You don't sense that there's a big movement, although we have God's word, very few people know it. In fact, many of the Old Testament prophecies that say that there's a famine of the word of God, it feels like it, doesn't it, in our day and age. And that's, that's just looking at it from our microcosm here in the United States. But you look even broader than that. You look at what's happening in Afghanistan. You look at the Syrian refugee crisis. You look at some of the problems in African countries. And I mean, there is a genuine darkness in our world, much like what they were living in in Luke chapter 1. And so you go, man, how, how, how can there be life in a culture that is so dark? Well, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, and he was of the division of Abijah, and his wife 
was of the daughters of Aaron. And they were both, we're told, righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. After 400 years of not getting any new prophecies from any prophets, of silence from God, there was this man and woman, among others, there weren't many, but there were some who knew God's word and who followed God's word. And so four points here tonight. Here's the first one. When the world around you is dark and dreary, hold on to the things that you know are true. If you want to come alive in your expectations, this is the first thing we learn in this text. Though the world or when the world around you is dark and dreary, and boy, is it dark and dreary right now, you and I can hold on to the things that we know are true. You go, well, what do we know are true? Here, here's the confidence that Zechariah and Elizabeth had. They walked in the ways of the Lord. So even though there had been 400 years of silence, they knew God's word. They were obedient to God's word. I'll go back on this principle of obedience. But they hung on to it, even though nobody around them did. By and large, the culture was not a fan of God and his ways. The Roman Empire wanted nothing to do with God. Later, that rule would lead to Nero, who actually would end up killing people who followed Jesus. That's later on, a few years later. Not that far later but but by and large though the culture was not following any form of truth you had people who individually sought the Lord knew his word and walked blamelessly and righteously before God and so you and I today can be confident just like Elizabeth and Zechariah were that as we become more and more familiar with God's word we can stand strong in our identity not as people of darkness, not as people of a broken culture, but as people of the word who walk righteously and blamelessly before God. And so you can be clear in your position, I can be clear in my position, even when the culture around us is confused about its own. Like never before have I seen confusion in the world. People call, people no longer believe in an absolute truth. There's no such thing as truth. It's like your truth, my truth, whoever's truth. If I believe it and I've got three other people on social media who agree with me, somehow that makes it the truth. We have no standard of belief anymore. And yet God's word is the truth. All truth is God's truth. We, there is such a thing as truth. And though the culture might deny it, though the culture might shame us and mock us because of it, here is an example of a man and a woman, by the way, not just them, but many others who were still walking in the ways of God. There were priests that got together and every year they went to offer incense and sacrifices as was their tradition, as God had instructed them in uh, the Old Testament, which was the word of God that they had illuminated at this time. And so, and so you say, what can I do in this day and age to come alive? Well, get familiar with God's word. This is the end of the year. This is a great time to do it when you're focusing on 2022. One of the biggest resolutions you and I can do, and I firmly believe in resolutions. I wrote my third book, Resolved, because I really believe that if you decide to do, you're not going to do something you don't decide to do. I can tell you that. You'll never run if you never think about running. I don't care about your running or not. I'm just saying the way to do something I've had on my to-do list Man, for the past two months, I think, clean closets, clean closets. That's been on my to-do list for weeks. Now, had I not put it on the to-do list, it wouldn't have ever happened. But even putting it on the to-do list didn't get it to happen. It happened when I dedicated myself to it and resolved to do it so that this afternoon, after starting the process, I grabbed my sister, she sat down on the chair, and I went through, my mom will be uh, hating to hear that, but I cleaned out 50% of my closet. Praise the Lord, I love doing that. But it started with a commitment that turned into a to-do list item that then turned into more getting other people in the community, my sister and my nephew, Sam, 
who was drug into this and was a huge help. And, and, and they were able to come together with me, such a simple illustration of, you come, how am I going to read my Bible? How am I going to become familiar? How did Elizabeth and Zechariah know God's word to do it? Well, they dedicated themselves to it. So it wasn't enough that they were just born in a family of priests. They committed themselves to knowing God's word, even though everybody in their culture did not, even though there was an oppressive darkness in the culture that disdained the word of God. Religiously, by the way, we didn't get into that, but there was such a faction among the religious people. There was the Pharisees and the Sadducees and a couple of other groups, the Zealots, and there was a fourth group, I think the Essenes or something. And they each had an opinion of how things should be. And none of them, later on, Jesus would accuse them all of not knowing the truth. And they were the ones that were kind of putting down the law and trying to control people through the legalism of their ways. And, and even in that climate, there were people who divided the word of God rightly and continued to faithfully do God's word. And so do you know God's word? Are you making it a commitment to follow God's word? If you want to come alive, it starts with that. Here's a second idea. So the first one, when the world around us is dark and dreary, let's hold on to the things that we know are true. Here's the second one. When the dreams inside us are dead and shriveling, we need to position our lives to faithful obedience. All right, Irina is going to put that up there. When the dreams inside you are dead and shriveling or drying, if you want to stick to alliterations and Ds, position your life to faithful obedience. Okay, this is critical, critical. So you go, what were, how was the life of Elizabeth and, and, and Zechariah? I mean, they seemed like they were happily married. I, I would say they were happily married from what you can read in the text. And, 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 and in fact, um, they were obedient, but they had a small problem. And we're told in verse 7 that they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Now, now this is a big deal in 2021. It was a huge deal in BC 4, when this was, or BC 20, whatever it was, in those few years before Jesus was born. I mean, this was a huge deal because the woman's identity was through childbearing. By the way, some would say even today that might be an issue, that women who don't have kids, who want to have kids, it's a, it's, a, it's a burden. Maybe that's you, and you're listening today, and you understand the pain of that. And so that was Elizabeth's life. Now, she's well into her menopausal years. It thought that they're over 60. So they have no child. So there's a dream that they had when they got married. Most married couples want to have kids. Some don't, but most do. And in that era, most did want to have kids. That was the, one of the reasons they married. And so imagine this young couple dreaming and praying. They were obedient. They were faithful. They knew God's word. They believed that God wanted them to have kids. They brought their longings, their expectations, their desires to God, and they were faced with barrenness. You say, how, what was their response to that? Well, um, they were at the temple at the time of the sacrifices in order to faithfully do what God had told them to do. And so barrenness, you see, will test your faith, but it cannot extinguish it. Some of you, it's not a child barrenness that you're experiencing, but it might be a different type of barrenness. Maybe your barrenness, the word itself sounds so barren, doesn't it? Barrenness is this emptiness. It's this dryness. It's this deadness. And, and maybe for some of you, it was a dream in your jobs, in your careers. Maybe it's in your ministry aspirations. Man, you know I have so many dreams in ministry that seem to be on hold at some seasons in my life where I'm like, the things that I thought would happen would not. Maybe for some of you, it's marriage. That, that's your area of barrenness. You never married and you really wanted to. It's a godly desire to want to be married. Maybe your barrenness is in your family. You have kids and husbands you've prayed for it and barrenness and barrenness is heavy and it will test your faith, but it cannot extinguish it. So here is Elizabeth and Zechariah who are weighed down by this dream that has shriveled. 
And, and, and later in the reading, I read it already, but, but in verse 12, 13, the angel says to Zechariah, do not be afraid for your prayer has been heard. This couple prayed faithfully that they would have kids. I don't know when they stopped praying. Maybe they did stop because now the estimation is Zechariah is in his 60s. So did they quit praying at some point? Maybe, I don't know. But they prayed enough that the angel shows up and says, maybe they were still praying. Have you given up on praying for the longings of your heart? I've caught myself. That's how I protect against previous disappointments. I, I, I don't. I stopped questioning God. I received his goodness. But what I found is that I stifled my expectations. I, I tamper, tapered them down. I, I ignore them. I shove them down. I don't want to express my longings to God because I'm afraid of being disappointed again. And that is not an effective strategy. It is God who has given us our, our dreams. It is God who has put the longings in our hearts if they're godly longings. I mean, if you have a longing to go steal a bank, that's not from the Lord. But the longings that we have that are honoring to him, he's given us those longings. Rather than, than hiding them from God, one of the goals of the Christian life is to trust God enough to bring him our longings. And so here's this timing thing where Zechariah's obedience to God day after day and week after week, he's faithfully where he's supposed to be. He's, he's walking the path that God has for him despite his barrenness, despite his disappointment, despite the challenge to his faith. He is still a man of faith. And, and you see God's timing in this because every year, so the system that they had was that there were a lot of priests and they would take, uh, there was only so many jobs and so they would cast lots and based on the lots, they would decide who would go in and offer incense. And there were usually three people. One would extinguish the coals from the night before at the altar. The other one would bring the new coals and the other one would come and light the incense. And so Zachariah, it fell upon him in that season of service, he's still serving God. That's what he's doing. He's hurting, he's disappointed, his dreams have not come to pass, but he's showing up and he's serving God and he's faithful and he walks up to the altar and, and it is in that context. And by the way, there's an Old Testament verse that's amazing. It says, the, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I don't remember the exact uh, location in Proverbs, but it's in Proverbs. Um, maybe 16, but you can look it up. The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So it was no accident that, that the lot was cast that year on Zechariah to offer the incense because that was going to be the meeting point that God had planned for this man whose dreams had been extinguished, humanly speaking. And, and, and it was no accident because God had a plan before Zechariah was born that he and Elizabeth would bear a son named John who would be the forerunner to Jesus, the Messiah. So after 400 years of silence and years of serving in the temple, and by the way, uh, the priests, it, would, it was like a once in a lifetime event that they would go up and offer incense. You didn't do it again. It was like, you, if you were lucky, you got to do that once and that was it. And so for John, like you go, how did it happen on that day, in that moment, in that way? Because God had a plan. He was never the delays in, in Zechariah's life were never denials. The delays were not a punishment. It was a season of testing, but it was a season that ended. And so barrenness will test your faith, but it cannot, it should not, it must not extinguish it. Barrenness can persist, by the way, here's a teaching point. Barrenness can persist despite your faithful obedience. A lot of us have been sold this prosperity teaching that if you obey God, he's going to give you what you want. That is not true. God is way more generous to us than we deserve, but it doesn't hinge on my obedience. Now there's, yes, there's blessing with obedience, but I think we turn it upside down. We think if I obey God, he'll bless me. But God blesses us, period. There's, there's joy in obedience. There's fruitfulness in obedience. 
But God blesses us despite our disobedience. I, I'm telling you, that's the truth. You move, well, there's not, God says if you're blessing a promise and if you disobey a curse, of course there's consequences to disobedience, but we're the ones who are hurting. God's grace is, look, God's grace is on all humans, those who believe in him and those who don't. There's a common grace given to us, but there's also an individual personal grace. Every day we wake up and we sin and God still pours his grace on us. It's us. We're the ones who are hindered by our disobedience. But what I find so instructive in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is that despite their obedience, they were still barren well into their 60s. In fact, humanly speaking, they were now in an impossible situation. There was no more coming to life. There was no more, like, like you know, you kind of go, well, you can still pray for a baby until menopause, right? Because after menopause, you can't have a baby. Like, that would take a miracle. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. And so here they are, barrenness, despite their obedience. So if that's you, don't be discouraged. You're not wasting your life. Obedience is never wasted. Obedience reflects the awesomeness of God. Obedience is a way to glorify God in the times of our pain. Obedience in barrenness is a, is, is a sign of Christianity. It's a sign of the worth of a Savior who is far bigger than anything and far better than anything we ever would want or deserve or dream of. Barrenness, by the way, here's another thought for you. Barrenness is not the same as fruitfulness. I'm sorry, barrenness is not the same as fruitfulness. Uh, uh, let, let me explain that a little bit. Barrenness is not the same as fruitfulness. Uh, I, I, I feel like I said it wrong, but, but I'll, I'll tell you the easiest way to, to understand what I'm trying to say is my friend, uh, my new friend, Ruth Simons, she's a Bible teacher, and she has a sentence that she has kind of coined and repeats a lot. And I think it's such a rich sentence that I believe with all my heart that she says, uh, you don't have to be blooming to be growing. And I think this is critical. Write it down. It's not my sentence, it's hers, but I think it's worth uh, reflecting on. You don't have to be blooming to be growing. Think about it. We're hitting winter in Chicago. Uh, in fact, many of my trees look like they're no, there's no flowers anymore on the roses. I've uh, trimmed them down as best as I could. My mom told me I shouldn't trim them down. And my, my landscaper said it's okay to trim them down. I had a crisis, but I finally half trimmed them down. That was my compromise, but, but there's no flowers anywhere. My trees, some, I have brown branches on some of the evergreens, but by and large, they're still green. But, but just because there's no flowers or just because there's a few brown trees doesn't mean that life is gone. Doesn't mean that there's death there. And see, often we equate this barren season as a time of death when in fact, it might just be a dormant life. It might just be a time where we're actually growing, deepening our roots, getting stronger. You should see when I first moved into the house and I planted the roses, they were this big. I bought them for a few dollars at the Home Depot. I don't even think, they, I don't even think they'd survive now. I mean, they were growing on the side of the house. If I didn't cut them down, my house looked like it was a forest of roses. And then you trim them down and there's new life that grows and it's more robust year after year, but you don't have to be blooming to be growing. So barrenness is not the same or as fruitless, you know, you understand what I do. I'm not gonna repeat that sentence that confused me. And so last thought on barrenness, Barrenness is no match for God's power in my life. Barrenness is no match for God's power in my life. In the midst of their barrenness, the angel of God showed up and a promise was made. You say, well, uh, let, let's kind of think about the Christmas story here as we move to point number three. I want to kind of wrap things to the second half of the study. Uh, so, so number one, when the world around you is dark and dreary, hold on to the things that you know are true. Number two, when the dreams inside you are dead and shriveling, position your life to faithful obedience. Number three, when God's plans for the world seem lofty and far-fetched, 
refuse to give in to cynical disbelief. All right, I'll come back in a minute to the, to the miracle that happened microscopically in Zechariah's life. But before we get there, let's sort of look at that section where the angel predicts the birth of John and he paints this picture of a coming Messiah and how John is gonna be the proclaimer of that. So when God's plan for the world seems lofty and far-fetched, listen, in the year of whatever this BC, a couple of years before, you know, so Mary wasn't pregnant yet, so Jesus wasn't born yet. So this is like a few years, BC four-ish, three-ish, so it's a couple of years before Christ uh, was born. In that time, the promise of the Messiah to come was in the minds of people who had not heard from God for 400 years, seemed so lofty and far-fetched. Think about it. Like, it's like, compare it to today, we talk about the second coming of Christ. When we start talking about the second coming of Christ, most people roll their eyes and go, yeah, right, you've been talking about that for years. That's what was happening in this story. For, but it wasn't about the second coming, it was about the first coming of Christ. For thousands of years, in fact, all the way back to Genesis, there was a prediction of a coming Messiah. Abraham was promised a son, and in fact, the son wasn't just the son Isaac back in Genesis 12, it was the promise of a coming offspring that would save the world of their sin. So for thousands of years, there was a promise of the coming Messiah, a goal, a prediction, a prophecy, a dream, an expectation that seemed lofty and far-fetched to people who in BC 345 sounded like, like echoing silence in a black hole of 400 years of silence. And yet, yet in that silent darkness, there was some people like Zechariah and Elizabeth who hung on to the hope of the promised Messiah. And so as, 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 as unfathomable as the news that came to Zechariah that he would be having a son, but it wasn't just that he would be having a son. This was a special son. In fact, he says to him, your wife will bear a son. You will call his name John. John means Yahweh has been gracious. That's the meaning of John. If you're named John, if you have a relative named John, Yahweh has been gracious. Indeed he has, and he continues to be. But in that time, after all of this darkness, in the midst of the darkness, after years of silence, of waiting, of rolling eyes, of cynical disbelief by the whole world, there were people who hung on, however weakly, however tenuously to the hope that maybe Jesus might still come. And then here's the angel, he says, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. This isn't even speaking about Jesus yet. This is about John. And he says, why? He explains to them, for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine. And he tells them how he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And like Elijah, the prophet before, who is a proclaimer of what's to come, here's this John who would be born in the spirit and the power of Elijah. This is, by the way, the first prophet that would be born in 400 years after Malachi. There were no prophets until John. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets because that's what he comes in in the New Testament. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. After John, John proclaims the coming of the Messiah and then Jesus. And there's no need for prophets anymore because Jesus is the culmination of these prophecies. And so that's the promise that they're given to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
Listen, just because God is silent does not mean that he's not at work to accomplish his purposes in the world. Today in 2021, there are many people who wonder why is God silent? Why is God not acting? Why is God not punishing those who deserve to be punished? Why is God not moving? Why is God letting people get away with the atrocities that are happening outside of our country and in our country? And listen, just because God seems silent doesn't mean even if it takes 400 years, even if it takes thousands of years, he is accomplishing his purposes in this world even as we speak. I believe this with every fiber of my being. The reality that God can speak and move at any time, in any way, and on any topic is what ought to keep us going and functioning in hope. This is what ought to fuel our joy that we, we got to come alive in this idea that on any given day, Zechariah walks into the temple to offer incense. His dreams are dead. The world is dark. Cynical disbelief rules the hearts of the majority of people, but not Zechariah. And by the way, his faith, we'll see in a minute, wasn't perfect, but he still had an understanding that the same God who promised a son to Abraham could still bring the birth of Jesus, and it was coming so soon. Imagine, what if Jesus was coming back? What if his second coming was on the... What if we were living in the eve? And by the way, my mom is watching tonight. She believes, and many of us believe, that we are living in the eve of the second coming of Christ. Listen, just because God is silent does not mean he's not at work to accomplish his purpose in the world right now. Just because God seems inactive does not mean he is powerless. Do not confuse the two things. And just because God seems to be hiding doesn't mean he's not hearing your prayers and seeing you. Listen, I love how the angel says to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. There's not a prayer you've ever prayed for a lost loved one, for a dream that you know would honor God, for a future that you have felt in, the, in your spirit that God has promised you and, and you've, you've circled the verse and you've underlined the words and you've claimed the promise. Listen to me, just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean God doesn't see you, know you, understand you, love you, and is bringing to life those expectations in his perfect timing, even if it seems impossible. That, 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 that encouragement, he says, your prayers have been heard. Listen, I love the idea. Prayer is so much more than an idea. Prayer is our weapon to fight cynical disbelief. Do you understand that? Prayer is our weapon against deadened cynicism. The way you and I will fight the cynicism of disbelief and of rolling our eyes at whatever promises in God's word that's not happening right now and at whatever... You know, you want to go down the stream of the culture. The culture is, is cynical and disbelieving. And the only, the key to reverting that is to spend time in prayer. Prayer awakens us, so to speak, to the realities of who God is and what he has promised. It is our weapon against deadened cynicism. Prayer, prayer is the language that unites us, even as Zechariah is at the temple, inside the temple, waiting to offer incense. And this, this vision happens to him, this encounter with the Gabriel angel. Outside, we're told that the priests were all praying too. There was a unifying bond in prayer. And who of us haven't felt it? When we finish here in a moment, I'm going to close this in prayer. During the course of the week, many of you will send me emails. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for your ministry. There is a unifying strength that builds hope in spaces where we're tempted to disbelief and where our waiting 
prolongs and where our dreams look like they're dead and our life looks bare and listen prayer is what will unite us together and it is the power that will pull us out of despair god has given us the gift of prayer we pray to god it's not just prayer it is it is who we pray to we're not praying to the wind we're not praying to a false god we're not praying to a dead god we're praying to the living god we're praying to jehovah god who is alive who is at work who is not asleep who is powerful enough to take those things that are done in our life and to turn them around and he'll do it at any time in any way on any topic in any impossibilities which brings me to the last point here which is this when god's promises in your life defy your present realities refuse to let your impossible stifle God's possible. Now, Irina is going to put that sentence. I think you need to see it. Let me read it again. When God's promises in your life defy your present reality, everyone, there we go. All right. When God's promises in your life defy your present reality, your present reality, refuse to let your impossible stifle God's possible. All right. We are all living with impossible situations in our life. What we do, we just move. We delete them. We just want to erase them. We just figure, well, they're impossible. I'm just going to stop dreaming that dream. I'm going to stop praying that prayer because nothing's happened so far. And therefore, nothing's going to happen. And, and, and Zechariah was tempted to do the same. When the angel says to him, you're going to have a son, his gut instinct is disbelief. In fact, he says, how shall I know this? I'm an old man. This can't happen. And, 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 and love, I love what happens because most of us have this conviction in our minds that if we disbelief God, he's not going to work in our life. And while I absolutely believe that faith fuels God's movement in our life, God is so much gooder, better than our little faith. Like the man who says, I believe, help my unbelief. This is the story of Zechariah. See, see, I love that your doubt and my doubt is not a deal breaker. But God will use our doubt to magnify himself to us in powerful ways. When, when Zechariah says, man, I'm struggling to believe how this is going to happen. The Gabriel angel says, okay, all right, I'm still going to do it. But, but you know what? You're not going to speak from now until then. And, and boy, I tell you, sometimes in my life, I wish God would say that. Because sometimes the words that come out of my mouth when I'm facing the impossible, they're not words of faith. They're words of doubt. And I wish I would just shut up in that season. I wish God would just shut me up rather than saying the words that I'm saying that... that reflect the reality of my weakened faith and yet God in his goodness works in their life despite their weak faith by the way Elizabeth never had weak faith right only Zachariah did but I don't know how that played out actually we don't know exactly what Elizabeth went through I do know that that after Zechariah got home she conceived and so they acted in faith not to be too graphic but there was an action of faith and there was a fruit of faith and so your doubt is not a deal breaker your uh, life is not isolated it is part of God's bigger story for the world. There, God is living. There's a kingdom story, and you and I are part of that kingdom story. The timing of when our dreams come to life are part of a bigger story. Zach, God could have done this miracle in Zechariah's life at any point. He could have done it when they were 20. He could have done it when they were 30. He could have done it the moment they started praying, but God had delayed. Why? Because Zechariah and Elizabeth and John were part of God's bigger kingdom story. So if you and I today stand looking at the impossible situations in our life, and wonder, 
God, have you forgotten us? The answer is no, he hasn't. He's just waiting to set up a kingdom story. And how we fit into that kingdom story is according to God's way and God's time and in God's plans. So don't be discouraged if you're facing these times of delay. Your delays are not accidental. They are used by God to accomplish his bigger purpose in your life, but also in the life of the Christian community around you. And lastly, your joy is not forever stolen, but will always bloom as you fix your eyes on God's faithfulness to you. Your joy is not forever stolen, but will always bloom as you fix your eyes on God's faithfulness to you. That's what Zechariah and Elizabeth did. Uh, I love what uh, verse 23 says. I, I read this in a commentary earlier today. Uh, after the uh, the vision was given in verse 22 when he came out so Zechariah comes out he can't speak uh, it says he was made signs and he told and then and in verse 23 and when his time of service was ended he went to his house imagine he gets this awesome news uh, God works this in his life and rather than running home to tell Elizabeth he finishes his duty this man is obedient and faithful and he's focused and and despite the little obstacle of not speaking maybe that was a break for Elizabeth for nine months I don't know but I know that later on in, in verse 57, Elizabeth has a baby and uh, and they ask the dad, hey, what are you going to name him? Because John was not a family name and he writes down John and then he starts to speak because he acted by faith. Listen, listen, you and I might doubt at the beginning of our walk, but there comes a point where we need to resolve to believe God, to hang on to his promises. We see God's goodness. I mean, John and I mean, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they could see the pregnancy like they had an evidence of God answering for nine months. Zechariah was shown over and again that God is faithful. He hears us when we cry. Listen, and his expectations were indeed brought back to life. And maybe that's where you're at today. You need that reminder. You need that hope. If there's ever a story that livens our expectations, that awakens our expectations, it is the story of Christmas. So whether we're looking at the prequel today or next week, we're going to dig into the story of Mary and Joseph and how that plays out. And then later the birth of Jesus in week three, as we make our advent, our anticipation towards the birth of Jesus, let this year, like no other year, be a year of hope coming back to life. I love the, the hymn. Uh, I'll read you just a few words. I, I think this 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 uh, old Christmas song or carol uh, is one of the most hauntingly beautiful Christmas carols. Uh, you might listen to it after the session, but the guy who wrote it is... Uh, his name was Henry Longfellow, and he was in a dark place. It was a dark time in the 1863, and uh, his wife had been burned, uh, died, burned. I think her clothes caught on fire, and, and he couldn't stop the fire on her, and she ended up burning, and he was so in love with her, and he never recovered from that. And then his son got injured in the war, and and, and he just had a lot of hits, and, and when he was in a dark place, and one Christmas morning, he heard the bells on Christmas Day, and the old song goes, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet their songs repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed, this is another verse, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But the bells are ringing peace on earth, like a choir singing peace on earth. Does anybody hear them? Peace on earth, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Listen, we have hope. Our hope is alive. Our expectations are alive because we have the promise. We've seen the promise of a coming Messiah and we have the promise of him yet to come again a second time and eventually to rule 
with peace on earth for all just to live in eternally. And so uh, every time you hear a bell ring this Christmas, whether it's the little um, person, you know, the Salvation Army person in front of the grocery store or, or any bell, maybe there's a church by you that rings bells, may you and I be reminded of the beautiful uh, story of not just, of course, Jesus, which we'll focus on, but even this prequel of humans like you and me who struggled with the same issues and same delays and same dead end dreams that you and I struggle with in a dark, dark world, and yet, was able to uh, experience God in a deep and an intimate way uh, that radically changed everything about their life. So that's my prayer for you this Christmas, that we would indeed uh, come alive in our expectations as we focus our eyes on Jesus.